And we are back. Uh, we are excited. This is going to be a really great episode, great month lined up for everyone. Um, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and uh, and I think it's really important. Maddie and I were talking as we we're you know figuring out the schedule, who we're going to have on, and we said, well, let's talk to some different corners of of, uh, of people we know or we've been in contact with, and um, and really you know sort of shine a light on people that are doing work in the mental health field. It's it's become a buzzword, but um, you know we really want to you know. Talk about more than just sports. That being said, um, I think there might be millions of Bruins fans out there that um, could use, you know, a conversation with uh, someone in the mental health field after this weekend. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, other than that, Maddie, how was the weekend? Any any thoughts before we jump in with our guest? No, and there's no good way to say this, but you just mentioned the Bruins, and I actually already forgot they lost. Like, I just kind of moved right on from it, and it's only because there's just so many championships that I think either way I'm desensitized. I don't even know that if I see one now, I'm like, I understand the significance. So, yeah, this is a good opportunity for us to not um, only talk about how many times I searched for Devin A. Chain on Twitter today to make sure that he fits Miami's run zone blocking scheme. (laughs) We got to show that range, and so... It's good that we get to do it today with one of my my dear friends. Well, I am excited. Um, I I met Marissa Makey today uh, backstage. She is a school adjustment counselor. Um, works specifically in sixth grade um, at a at a school that's solely for sixth graders. So a, a lot of interesting topics around you know 2020 and and beyond. But Marissa, welcome to the show. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining Maddie and I. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes. So tell me a little bit about like, just what does a school adjustment counselor do? What are, what are some of the things that you do on a day-to-day basis? How did you get into it? I know it's a double up question there, but. uh, Yeah. So I, um, where to begin? I mean, I think a day in the life of a school adjustment counselor, the, the biggest piece is every day is different and every moment is different. And that's one of the things I love about the job is that, you know, I go in every day with a plan and there are curveballs that are thrown at me, you know, every moment of the day, which is wonderful. Um, so, you know, my job consists of supporting students who are on individualized education plans that specifically have social and emotional goals. So basically there's been a determination that the student has a disability in the emotional realm that's been determined by outside testing um, or a diagnosis from an outside provider And we write goals that are focused on school-based counseling. So what counseling supports can we put in place in a school environment that will help a student succeed in their day-to-day? And that can look at anything, you know, with students who are on the spectrum, who need a little bit of support, you know, connecting with their peers. Um, Students, this is the, the biggest area probably with anxiety. How are we supporting students to identify their anxiety, build coping strategies, and then manage their anxiety within the school setting? so that it doesn't impact day to day. Um, I 
got into this profession, um, kind of hap, not haphazardly into the counseling profession. I always knew I wanted to be in schools. Both of my parents uh, were educators. They're since retired. I grew up in schools and I've always loved being in schools. Um, initially, I thought I wanted to be a teacher. And then I sort of found my way into counseling um, in graduate school. I decided at the end of my college career, I studied psychology. I was like, I think I, I don't want to manage a classroom. I think I'm going to go the counseling route. Um, and I ended up at Leslie University and got a dual degree in school-based counseling and then also my LMHC, my licensed mental health counseling position, um, which allows me to have my private practice on the side. So um, I sort of always knew I wanted to go into that arena. Um, I started when I graduated from from college, I went and actually worked in Needham as a teaching assistant and they placed me in a therapeutic program. And I learned very quickly that while I had my undergrad in psychology, I did not have the skill set to be working where I was, which is what pushed me back to graduate school. I had some wonderful internships, a clinical-based internship with the Home for Little Wanderers, which was an amazing learning experience, a school internship. And then I ended up back in Needham in a couple different schools and have been at my current school for eight years now. So it's been a journey. Wow. It's been eight years. Yeah. I was just, just thinking about, because we met probably what, we're coming up on a decade of friendship now. Does that sound right? Does that feel right? I would say so. And it's interesting hearing you tell that because it's, so this is the fun part of doing this is, you know, when you bring on people that you already know, you, uh, you learn that somehow there's like things I didn't know. And obviously I knew all of those things about you, but I didn't know that you had gone back to grad school once you figured out that like, Hey, I don't want to be in a classroom. And, and it's kind of funny. Like I think a lot of people would think about it. Well, a, first of all, I think we should be teaching all of those things that you mentioned way more than we should be teaching about you know, tertiary history topics or just things that aren't really going to help anybody be adjusted for this new reality. I kind of think that makes a lot of sense, but it's funny to hear that because I didn't realize that you had done that because I've also been in places in my life and you know this where I've like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to try this. And I think it is awesome that you have that mindset that you can like, you know, kind of like a sunk cost. If you're thinking something isn't going to be for you, you have the ability to shift and, and do something else. So yeah, that's, that's yeah. fun. Yeah, and I think it's this, you know, teachers and counselors, of course, go in with the same mindset, right? The, the goal mm -hmm. is to help students learn. Um, yeah. and actually, what's been interesting is our district and a lot of districts are focused exactly on what you said, Matt, which is how are we pushing this information? How are we how are we developing social and emotional skills at a much younger age? How are we embedding this in what we do every single day? Um, and our district has both a mental health task force, which looks more at sort of the general mental health status of our students and our staff members, and then also a social emotional learning task force, which I serve on, you know, really looking at the curricula that's out there and how we're embedding it at, you know, in our preschool to really help support those conversations early on. On, and I think we're we're doing a great job of it, but there's always more to do. Yeah. So, and oh, sorry, Gibby. I was just going to say too. Yeah. Growing up, all of us going to school, like I don't remember ever being taught anything on how to navigate social interactions and learn soft skills. Right. All we ever learned was just like open your textbook. The Spanish Inquisition was at X Y. Like, who cares about that stuff? Yeah, it's nice to know. And if you're interested in it, you can go seek more knowledge. But I realized later in life that we don't really set kids up for success socially at all. We just, you know, some kids, you throw them into the mix and they just figure it out. They're butterflies. And then others need a little bit of help. And any little interaction can kind of push them in the wrong direction. And I think we all can think back to times like that. But 
Yeah, it's pretty wild. I just thought I, I've not thought about this until now, but we really don't equip the kids properly for all the things they could run into. So it's no. awesome that you do that. Yeah. And I think, you know, not only that absolutely is the case, which is why there's been, I think for a while, this focus on social emotional learning and teaching social pragmatics. I think COVID also did a number. I mean, we had kids that were not socially interacting for an extended period of time with other kids. And we noticed when we had our first sort of hybrid in-person you know, at home year back that we were teaching very basic social skills to our sixth graders. Like you can't be pushing each other. You can't get as close to someone's face, like all of these basic skills. So I feel like this is something we've been doing, but now we're almost reinventing the wheel a little bit because we're seeing these, these massive skill gaps because of the pandemic and COVID. And, you know, it's not a bad practice to look at what we're doing and make adjustments. Yeah. And you mentioned too, Backstage, I think for today. Yeah, backstage. It's up to you. Um, yeah, yeah it's your call. <laughs> so you mentioned, you know, we're coming up, and and your school is focused on sixth grade. Um, we're coming up on really your first year of students that are coming into sixth grade. Your caseload, you mentioned as well, is going to be increasing. Like, um, what? what sort of, there's got to be some, something that's going into that. So, you know, extra resources. I'm curious, are there expectations, uh, what you've, you know, encountered so far before you get into next year? Yeah. I mean, I am really lucky to work in my district and also with the, the coworkers that I have. So I operate within our special education department and there are liaisons that work. We're on a cluster model. So there are five clusters of students in our school. Each cluster has a special education liaison who's responsible for a caseload of about 10 to 20, depending on kind of what programs are in each cluster. Um, Those teachers that I work with are phenomenal and are really like on the ground working with students day to day and help support. I mean, as you said, Matt, talk about teaching those social emotional skills in the moment. That's really what they're focusing on. Um, We, I also have a, a special education director who is one of my bosses and she was a special education liaison and she is phenomenal. And so she has been really creative in thinking about, you know, how are we supporting this uptick in, um, you know, a need for counseling? So doing things like, you know, having me run more groups going into, we have an advisory program, which is like homeroom, having me run groups and advisories, really figuring out ways to group students. Um, I was sharing that at the beginning that I have a caseload now of about 30 students next year. I'm looking at about 45 or 50. Um, So, you know, we're trying to be creative in how we're supporting students. I think in general, people's anxiety has increased. You know, I I think there's sort of been a natural progression of that. COVID has certainly exacerbated that process. Um, We see a, a big uptick of it at our school because we, you know, have five elementary schools pooling into our sixth grade school. It's technically middle school. There's a lot of like, oh my goodness, this is a huge transition. Let's make sure that kids have as much support as they need. Um, So there's a lot of factors that come into play, but we're trying to be creative around group work, you know, seeing students for lunch groups, finding ways to do more of that push in teaching into classrooms so that we're we're targeting a larger audience. Um, Because I think the demands, the demands are increasing and we are a well-resourced district um, and we're finding ourselves pretty strapped. Yeah, that and that speaks to, you know, I end up in this place a lot in my life too. Like, it sounds like you're trying to be as efficient as possible with your and your sort of colleagues time, 
because you only have so much capacity. That's the other thing that I think that kind of goes unnoticed in roles like this. It's all mental. So your whole day is like navigating these conversations and these difficult situations, whereas the majority of other people in other walks of life and other careers, you're just kind of conversating, but you're potentially in situations where you might be speaking quite literally different languages because the other person is just not on the same wavelength. So that efficiency that you're like striving for is really cool. And I like that because you're getting the most out of the amount of capacity that you have in a given day, right. which is really cool too. So no matter how many resources you have, you still, people need, learning is hard. You have to like, obviously, you know, this practice, then take a little break and then practice again. Like you have to keep going. Gibby and I are trying to become not bad at golf and it's lots <laughs> of practice and lots of bad. And Ben knows this yeah. as well. I was going to say, I've heard yeah. That. <laughs> yeah, he's heard that one. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. it's cool. I mean, you're trying to be as efficient as possible and get make as big of an impact as you can. It becomes a force multiplier. So that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. And we only have a year to work with these students because we're just mm-hmm. a one-year school. So that adds a factor in as well. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned at the beginning too, you know, the rise in anxiety. Um, is that something in, in also we talked about COVID exacerbating that in, in students, but um, is that something that you are seeing as is or was more prevalent, you know, seven years ago, even pre-COVID, and that people have been more comfortable talking about and, and you know, at a younger age too, or, you, or, or parents talking about their, their children in that capacity? Yeah, I think it's sort of morphed. You know, what's interesting when I when I first came back to Needham after I was in graduate school, we were talking generally about sort of this uptick that we were seeing you know, and it's always hard to know, like, are there truly more cases of anxiety? Are we talking about it more often? Is it becoming, you know, just a more, more common place to talk about anxiety, which I think, you know, there's a lot of benefits to that. Normalizing the fact that everyone experiences anxiety to, you know, whatever varying degree I think is really important. One interesting piece with a group that I was working with when I came back to Needham. So this was 2013, we were talking about this uptick in anxiety and what someone had pointed out, and there's been kind of a limited amount of research on this, is that that group that I had at that point, so they were around 12, were were students that were born either in 2001 or right after September 11th. Um, and so what we were talking about at that point was sort of, the, you know, the world changed after 9-11. The yeah, amount yeah. of anxiety going about your day-to-day life was was massive um, in comparison to how we lived prior. Right, 1999, yeah. Exactly. Still anxiety, right? Always there, always present, but sort of this shift and what happened to these, these children as they were in utero or, you know, growing up directly after 9-11. And so I think a similar focus has been put on COVID, obviously two very different world events, um, but sort of this really scary period of time that has now shifted how we live our lives. And I think we are sort of naturally trying to shift with it. I think there's a combination of, you know, there there truly being more anxiety post-COVID. I think kids are having to navigate um, you know, a, a different world, I would be remiss to not throw in social media because I think yeah. that massive, massive component um, of anxiety when I, I would assume when we all went to school, you know, if you had a bad day at school, you go home, there's no connection yeah. to what's happened. Now students really struggle to get away and parents really struggle with this balance of, as we were talking backstage about this balance of, you know, this is the world we live in. So I need to help my child understand how to use these, these things effectively, um, but also not become inundated and sucked in 
to the social media world. So I think there's a lot of pieces that have pushed people to, to more openly talk about anxiety, which is great. Um, you know, I think it's then figuring out how to support these large number of students and families and parents and adults who are experiencing, you know, all different varying levels of anxiety. So to that end, knowing you as well as I do now and knowing uh, the commonalities you share with my wife and you love to plan and you guys absolutely love to figure out good process, put a plan together, adhere to it. What is the or a couple of the most lacking elements of this process that aren't working right now that you, if you could be top of this food chain of the whole world and you could quite literally just enact any changes what are the things that you would change in this ecosystem? I'll put it right now that you think we could be doing a little bit better. I think the biggest piece is access and access to well-trained, strong counselors. Um, so both in a school-based setting, you know, I we have a, a people that we refer our families to if they're looking for outside counseling. We have agencies that we work with. Um, insurance is a huge barrier. You know, a lot of the really strong therapists in this area that I know and that I refer to no longer take insurance. And I think from a consumer standpoint, people are like, how, like, how could you possibly not take insurance and charge this amount of money per session, et cetera. Now that I have a private practice, I understand because the, the challenge is the insurance companies pay terribly. So, you know, if this is your livelihood and this is how you're making, you know, not incentivized to care. Exactly. You're not, you know, there, there's some insurance panels that pay much more. So people will like, I'm only impaneled with one insurance company. Um, and a lot of people are just completely removing themselves. They'll do sliding scales. They'll figure out ways to, to work with people. Um, but that is a real challenge. I mean, I have some really, um, well-versed colleagues in the mental health field who have been looking for care for their children or for family members and really have struggled to find good people that have availability. Um, I had a, a friend who was looking for a psychiatrist for a friend of a friend and was sent a resource. And the initial session was $1,500 to meet with the psychiatrist. It's not feasible. No. So you are removing access. So I think that is the number one piece, like, and that's a total upheaval, you know, upend of the system. Um, I think also to a a more severe degree, you know, families or, or individuals, students who are looking for that higher level of care, whether it be a community-based acute treatment program or um, inpatient, there are no beds, Um, And it's a long wait to get into some of these programs. So I think access is huge. And then I think the other pieces around, and and you both were talking about this, is normalizing that we need, everyone needs mental health care. I'm in therapy myself. I was told in graduate school, we can't force you to go to therapy. We can't require it. But if you're going to sit in the therapist chair, you better know what it feels like to sit in the other chair. And I was like, oh, uh uh-huh, that makes perfect sense. So I think the more that we can provide access to good quality, affordable care, um, which is challenging, and then also normalize that it is perfectly reasonable for everyone to have this type of support. Um, Those would be my two, my two hopes. It's crazy that that first answer is the answer that we hear basically for anything in our healthcare system. Like we're the most developed nation one of the most developed nations in the world and we can't sort out how to take care of ourselves somehow. It's crazy. Exactly. But exactly. And I think part of it too, and you alluded to this and we've talked about this in the past is especially on the male side of the fence, like most 
males don't really feel that comfortable talking about it because there's all the things that get wrapped up into becoming a human and then whatever, right? Like the ego and the self-awareness and all that stuff that we're not taught as men to be vulnerable to. And so that makes it even harder. So it's like a, it's like a combination of all these awful things. It sounds like. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that's the one, um, you know, if we're sort of find a silver lining in the pandemic, I do think people are talking about mental health more. I think it's, as you both said, the balance of it being a buzzword versus people really getting support that they need. Um, But I think that it really has pushed mental health. I wish, and maybe it's just too soon. I wish we were seeing, I mean, we saw some big movement initially with some of the biggest insurance companies waiving all fees connected to mental health during the pandemic. That was yeah, huge. That's good. Um, telehealth being now, yeah. I wouldn't, I, well, I would probably still have a private practice, but my availability to see more people has been hugely impacted by being able to do telehealth. I really wouldn't yeah. be able to yeah young kids and have a private practice and a full-time school job without that allowance. Um, so there, there has been movement, but I, I'm hopeful for much more as we continue forward. There's a bunch of those telehealth. I mean, even just, you know, we've, you can do it, you can go and call them as if you were looking for some sort of a medicine, but there's a lot of that industry popped a lot of like smaller telehealth, like mental health type companies, which that should be the easiest thing to democratize and make access to, right? That's just, at us, in its essence, it's a conversation you're having with somebody right. who's like not going to come at it judging you. They're just listening to what you have to say to try to piece together what's going on. So that's awesome. That's a good, that's probably a positive outcome of the pandemic, yeah. then, I would guess. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you were talking a little bit, and I'm curious, it's stuck in my head and um, around, and I didn't even think about this before, but like the social media impact too. Um, mm-hmm. Are there tools out there for whether it's parents of, you know, middle school kids or, you know, teachers and and counselors to help students deal with both whether it's bullying or it's, you know, I need to fit in or I don't have, you know, the coolest shoes that this guy has and I'm not I don't have the same number of likes or TikTok followers like uh, what what around that at the middle school range. Um, it's terrifying to think about it being prevalent in middle school now, but. <laughs> yeah. You know, there are a lot of resources and I think it, what's key is sort of each family and parents figuring out sort of where they stand with technology and with social media and what their practices are going to be. Um, you know, most parents that I have worked with take a pretty hands-on approach um, and be very clear with their, their, children that whatever device they have is the, is the parent's device um, that at any point in time, the parent can access, you know, and take a look at what's going on. And I think having that open conversation of this is something I'm going to do is really important. There are apps that parents can use to track sort of social media use and and what's, you know, happening and sort of how much time kids are spending. I've had other parents who have had apps that shut down the Wi-Fi on different devices at different times so that, you know, there's not a fight between parents and children around bedtime, like it's time to put the device away. Um, Mm -hmm. There are definitely things out there. I will say that kids are really savvy and they are able to navigate these sites and the different aspects of these sites. And, you know, I, I think of myself on the younger side and sort of, we're not boomers. We're not boomers. We're, we're not, boomers. we're not, no, but let no. me tell you that you'd feel like a boomer <laughs> talking to some of these kids. Cause I'm I like, know. 
wait a minute, you have to like have a certain number of snaps going back and forth uh-huh. for a certain amount of time. And then you get some sort of award. I, I can't even follow. Um, so I would say we are, we are sort of on the hamster wheel of trying to keep up with it. Um, but I think also helping students to understand, you know, and, and families, you're making a choice to be on some of these sites. What are the potential pieces that you're going to have to navigate with your, with your child? Um, right. and if, hard because it is so much of how people communicate now. Right. So I think the common, there are parents who say absolutely not, and that's their choice. And that's great. I think it's easy to think that just sort of pulling all of that away is a way to, to make it not happen. And what we find with, with those students is that they, they miss out on things. They feel like they don't know what's going on. So it's this balance of absolutely keeping your kids safe, protecting your children. There are laws around when you are allowed to have these accounts, right? But also helping them navigate that this is how students are socializing. So it's, it's a really fine line. And I don't think we've found any magical balance. I think it's, you know, ever evolving and ever changing. You mentioned earlier too, pre-show, we were talking about it's a little bit different because the perspective changes. They grew up, these, this generation is growing up with this technology. Whereas again, we're not boomers. But we have rotary phones and like we figured it out because we're in that sweet spot of like, hey, we can't quite quit on learning technology, but we're never going to be as savvy as the generation coming behind us. But you said that and that was pretty interesting to me because I think the other element of this that comes into play and it's kind of weird, but it's like, you know, tail wagging the dog. If you choose to be on one extreme end of that spectrum as a parent, no screens at all or screens all the time you're probably setting that kid up for failure anyway, because they're not going to be adjusted. But the rest of that, you have to give them some, I feel like, because again, like you said, the rest of their friends are all like, what if you don't know anything going on? Or what if you're not like into the things that like trends or whatever, we follow them, we pop in and out of them, but like they kind of how you meet people. It's how you have conversation. It's how you advance. So I think, and Gibby, you said it earlier, it's a balance. We got to find a balance. I don't agree with any of the parents who are on either extreme spectrum. I can't imagine that's the place to be, but what no, do I know? It's a tricky middle ground, right? And I think it's navigating each situation as it comes. I mean, mm-hmm. and things are constantly changing. So, you know, if you're sort of set in one thing of like, this is how I'd handle this situation, it tends, especially in middle school, to get spun, you know, and shifted and you have to adjust with that too. So I think flexibility is really important. And I think open-ended conversations with students, we have a technology specialist who works with our parents to help navigate these situations, which is wonderful. Um, so I think, you know, using resources is is really important. If you were to, you know, think if there's one or two pieces of advice you've either gotten when you've been in the opposite side of the chair or you feel like you you find yourself saying over and over again to help a student or a parent or, you know, someone becoming an adult deal with anxiety, deal with depression or or, you know, navigate their way through this world. Is there something that you've going back to, is there a message that you consistently either tell someone or you've heard that you tell yourself um, as, as you're navigating? Yeah, there are a lot of those. I think the biggest piece that I always try to remind myself when I'm in a, a challenging situation or when I'm with a student that's in a challenging situation is how can we be in the right here and right now? You know, we talk a lot about how feelings of sadness bring us backwards, feelings of anxiety bring us forward. We're not very good at just being right where we are right now. And so, you know, I really work with my students on taking a good deep breath because that's the one thing we're doing in every moment and focusing on that breath 
breath. Cause I think when we can sort of bring ourselves into kind of what's happening, I do that all the time when I'm in a really tough situation, just to sort of like regroup and catch myself. Um, so that's one piece I, I really circle back to. Um, and I think, you know, one of the biggest pieces, and I don't know if this is sort of advice I've gotten, but sort of a general like rule I live by is around, you know, really finding connections and being connected to people, whether that's, you know, my colleagues at work who I could not do my job without finding connection with them, both personally and in the moment when we're working through a really difficult situation, friends outside of work. You know, I'm, I'm very lucky. My husband is a special education teacher, so he gets what I do very very intimately, thankfully. So I can come home and say, oh my goodness, like I, today has just been a day and he gets it innately. Um, but I think connections are so important, especially at any point in life, but especially post COVID. Um, so that's also a focus that I have for my students in my private practice. You know, how are people connected to one another? How do we build connections? Cause I think that's really where we thrive, whether it's a million connections or two really important connections. That is, I think a really important piece in all of our well-being. I mean, it's been, that's been proven scientifically, like social interaction, community, people live longer. They quite yeah. literally live longer. So I agree. It doesn't have to be a million. It can be just some, it can be quality over quantity. It doesn't matter. You could do either. Just like you really can't just sit at home all day anymore. We got, we normalized it during COVID and it was kind of like different and fun, but yeah. 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 And I think the other piece too is, I mean, kids are resilient and that's so much of why we do what we do is just, it's remarkable to see kids just, especially the younger ones that I, I work with, you know, bounce back from things and they're ready to go. They've had a tough moment and they're like, yeah, yeah, I'm good. I'm going to move forward. And so that I think is important too, that all of these moments are passing. How do we get through it to move to the next? Um, and, you know, kids are, kids are awesome. Middle school's yeah. a great time. <laughs> so before we wrap up and this is um absolutely phenomenal marissa like thank you this is uh we're kicking off mental health month in a big way yeah i <laughs> we're, we've got our work cut out for us for the rest of the month but um you know sometimes if i've had a tough day at work or i'm driving home from you know a, a customer visit that didn't go as planned or whatever the case might be I need to fill up on on the gas tank and uh, grab a snack while I'm in there and eat some of those feelings away. <laughs> if if you are if you are popping in um, for a bite to eat, dinner's not for another four hours. You didn't really have a full lunch. Um, what what's your go to for your gas station snack? It's we've got to ask. That's a good question. I 100% would get peanut M and M's. I'm a big Thanks. peanut M and M girl. That's you know, three, you got the chocolate, the salty, yeah. <laughs> that will carry me through. And I feel like, you know, you got some protein in there. With You've the got a little bit of protein in there. You know, it's the best <laughs> of all worlds. So yeah. absolutely peanut M&Ms. I love it. I know we've had a couple, at least, I know, well, tomorrow's guest, Juice, is a peanut M&M guy. I am. Marissa and I share a lot of snacks. Even it extends to dinner when we go out to dinner. Um, when I, when we go out the four of us to eat, there's always like weird things on the menu that we gravitate to. And it's like automatically our spouses are like, nope, out, don't want it. So yeah, I had no doubt that you would nail that one. That's a perfect yep. answer. Yep. Yep. Cool. So Marissa, thank you. I know we're wrapping up. 
Any last thoughts, anything you want to share with the tens and twenties of listeners out there? (laughs) (laughs) I love that you, that you guys are taking time to spotlight, you know, mental health month. I think, you know, it's, it's so important that we're talking about it, that we're open about it. As I said, the more we can normalize it and get people connected to good care, the better we all are, you know, it's, it's that old adage, which I hate to say, but it's so true. You know, you're on an airplane, they say, put your own mask on first before you can help other people. It's so true. You have to be good in yourself before you can really support others. So thank you guys for, for shining a spotlight on this, you know, really important work. Well, thank Thank you. you. This has been phenomenal. Yeah. Thanks. Have a good night, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.